And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order because we want to discover for ourselves who Jesus really was, what he did, what he said, what he taught, what he preached. Rather than hearing about it from other people and books on the internet, we want to see it in the word of God, in the words of Jesus for ourselves. Last week, we saw Peter get rebuked by Jesus with the famous words, get behind me, Satan which is a fantastic insult to add to your vocabulary. It's very useful while driving. I use it frequently. And we learned that moment came only minutes after one of Peter's greatest moments. This week, Peter is going to be only one of three disciples to witness something absolutely incredible. And he's going to stick his foot in his mouth Again, that's why we love Peter. We identify with him. What's going to happen this week is going to be a powerful reminder of who exactly Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. And I don't know about you, but I I need those reminders because I tend to shrink God down to my level. We even love to say Jesus is the number one priority on my list, and we forget Jesus doesn't want to be number one on your list. He wants to be number one on a list of one. He gets his own list. He is the whole list. But we tend to shrink him down and make him smaller, something we have to do every day. Read the Bible, pray, checklists on the same thing as things like go grocery shopping, change the light bulb. But he's so much more than that. Jesus is the meaning of life itself, and he's God. He's God. So let's jump into Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 1. Jesus shares a quote that has been much debated over the centuries. He's speaking to his disciples, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And again, that if your Bible says present there, it means show itself. And people wonder, what is Jesus talking about? And The truth is people get way too complicated with this question. They say, oh, he's speaking about his resurrection. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit coming upon believers in Acts chapter 2. The answer is so obvious because what he's speaking about happens in the very next few verses, and we're going to get into that. It's the event known as the transfiguration of Christ. Jesus is with his close disciples at this time, probably just the 12, and he says that some of them we'll see the kingdom of God present with power before they die. So let's read about this and make a note of this before we go on. Jesus is speaking of his imminent transfiguration. His imminent transfiguration. Now in verse two, it says this. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. So Peter, James, and John are Jesus's closest friends within the 12 disciples. Jesus had many disciples. Out of the many, he chose 70 to work with specifically. Out of the 70, he walked near daily with 12. And out of the 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John, who he was especially close and intimate with. And that's probably a good example for us. You know, we probably can't really be friends with many more than 70 people, no matter how big a church is. We can grow a lot from being involved in a small group of around 12 people, and we can walk in spiritual closeness with about three people. And whether we realize it or not, most of us probably are walking in spiritual closeness with about three people, which is why it's so important 
to be very intentional about who those three people are. Who are the three voices who have the most access to speak into your life? Even secular sociologists will tell you, you will become like the five people you most associate with. So be very intentional about who those three people are. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus took them up on the mountain to pray. And what happens next happened to Jesus while Jesus was praying. It says, and he was, underlined, transfigured before them. Transfigured before them. You may know that the word transfigured in the Greek is metamorpho, from which we derive our English word metamorphosis. The idea is that Jesus changes states. He becomes something as different from his human self as a butterfly is from a caterpillar. Yet the text will make it obvious that it's clear to the three disciples that it's still Jesus. He looks like Jesus, he sounds like Jesus, but he's also completely different. He's transformed somehow. I don't know what to liken it to. I don't know what comparison to give you because there's no reference point for this anywhere in our natural universe. It just in this moment, Jesus somehow takes off his fragile human frame and is fully clothed in his eternal, glorious God state. Fully revealed, beautiful, transcendent, powerful, and on and on and on we could go. There's nothing like this that takes place in our universe right now. In verse 3 it says, his clothes became shining. I like this. Exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Somebody needs to open up a Mark 9-3 laundromat. I'm just saying, that would be brilliant. Like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Matthew adds that his face shone like the sun. And many of you will be familiar with John 1.14, but you may have not realized that John is speaking literally, and I'll read you the verse and you'll understand. In that verse, John famously writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's on your outline, so underline these words. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When John says we beheld his glory, he's not speaking poetically, he's not speaking figuratively, he's speaking literally about what he saw at the transfiguration. He's saying we beheld his glory. I saw Jesus in his God state on the earth. We literally beheld his glory. Just a fun theory here as an aside. So we know that in Eden, in God's original creation, there was no death. Man was never going to die. So we're talking about this at our house the other day. We're like, well, then what was the plan for the earth? Because, you know, when you're not aging, when you're in peak physical shape all the time, and um, everybody's naked, the earth is going to get populated really, really, really fast. How does the earth not get overpopulated? And I read one commentator who said, maybe this was just the plan all along. Had sin never entered the world, you'd live on the earth for a while, and then you'd just be transfigured and change states and get taken up into heaven at some point. There'd be no death. That'd be pretty fantastic. Never wear pants that whole time. It'd be amazing. <laughs> Verse 4, it says, And Elijah, underline Elijah, appeared to them with Moses, underline Moses, and they were, and then underline, talking with Jesus, talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. Just a few points here worth mentioning. Firstly, I think it's worth asking, what is the transfiguration all about? I mean, we know what it is, but, but why? Why the transfiguration? 
I want to suggest to you the answer is in verse 1 where Jesus tells the disciples that this event is going to be his kingdom, the kingdom of God showing itself with power. So if this is meant to be a picture, a presentation of the kingdom of God, what do we see here? Well, we see Moses, write this down, representing the law. Moses represents the law. The law is just the Ten Commandments and all of the other laws that God gave in the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible. We know that the law couldn't be fulfilled by any human being. It was impossible. We know that the law reveals to us what God's perfect standard of holiness looks like, and the law is what reveals to every man, woman, and child that we're all sinners. None of us can live up to God's level of holiness. And then on the other side, we see Elijah representing the prophets. All of the promises God made in his word that he would send a savior to deliver us from the curse of the law, to deliver us from the condemnation we were under because we were all guilty of breaking the law. And what did Jesus say about himself as it relates to the law and the prophets? He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And what's in view here is Jesus at the center, the only one who could fulfill the law, the only one who could fulfill the prophets. Jesus at the center, the Messiah, the Christ, the hope of the world. What else do we see in the kingdom? We see ordinary men transformed, Elijah and Moses, into something glorious. That's our destiny too. We see men conversing with Jesus as friends. That's our destiny as well. And lastly, we'll find out that Jesus is sharing his future plans with his friends, Moses and Elijah. Jesus has shared his future plans with us as his friends as well. The law and the prophets fulfilled in Jesus, resulting in ordinary people being transformed into something glorious, ordinary people made into the friends of God, and all of it more glorious than words can describe. That's the kingdom of God, and Jesus is showing it to Peter, James, and John, and to us. Secondly, do you notice that Moses and Elijah have not returned to the earth as cows or flowers or somebody else? They're still Moses and Elijah. They're not reincarnated as something else. They are eternally Moses and Elijah. Thirdly, nobody had to identify Moses and Elijah. Moses doesn't say, hi, I'm Moses. You may remember me from such miracles as the parting of the Red Sea or the plagues of Egypt. He doesn't say that. Even in their glorified bodies, they're recognizable to anyone. But don't forget, the disciples had never met Moses and Elijah. They didn't have photographs. It wasn't like Peter was like, I'd know that beard anywhere. Classic Moses. Classic Moses. They'd never met them, and yet intrinsically, Peter, James, and John know that's Moses, that's Elijah. What does this tell us? It tells us that in eternity, everybody will know everybody. Heaven won't be full of awkward exchanges where people come up to you excited and you're like, I have no idea who you are, brother. <laughs> it, won't, it won't be like that. We'll just know everybody and everybody will know us. I would suggest to you, based on this, even people we've never met, we'll just know who everybody is. And I love that God doesn't turn us into robots or clones. What happens in eternity for believers is simply everything that restricts who we really are is stripped away. You realize our sin nature, our fallenness, all of those things hinder who God really made us to be. What happens in eternity is all of that stuff is stripped away 
and we are more fully ourselves than we could ever be here on the earth. We're the fully redeemed version of ourselves. And I think we're gonna be amazed. I know we're gonna be amazed by who we are when the Lord says, let me show you who I really made you to be. It's gonna blow us away. Fourthly, when it says that Jesus was talking with Elijah and Moses, the idea is that they're in a lengthy conversation. They're conversing. It wasn't supernatural small talk. It wasn't Jesus saying to Moses, so, you know, how's, uh, how's the wife? How, how are things? How's the house? They're talking about intense things, and Luke tells us what they were discussing about. Luke says they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And, and that's a bad translation because the literal word is not decease. It's departure or exodus. So they're talking about Jesus' departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus is talking with them about his coming death and resurrection and most likely his ascension at the end of his earthly ministry. And in my opinion, that makes it all the more likely that Moses and Elijah are, in fact, the two men who are at the tomb following Jesus' resurrection that's mentioned in Luke. Some commentators have pointed out, and I agree with them, that Jesus may also be talking with them perhaps about a future assignment he has as the two witnesses who will appear in Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 11. We studied that extensively in our study of Revelation 11. If you haven't heard that, go online, listen to the message. It's just a really interesting study into Moses and Elijah and why them, why them. And finally, Luke tells us that the disciples weren't praying with Jesus. They were sleeping. And just think about this. When they wake up, that's what they see. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in their glorified states. I don't know what happened. If it were me, I would have spent the first minute saying, ah! just like that for probably a solid minute because that's something to wake up to. I get freaked out when I wake up and my kid is standing next to the bed. So imagine you wake up and there's Jesus Christ in glory with Moses and Elijah. You're like, man, what else did I miss while I was sleeping? Like, what happened? So perhaps we should give Peter a break because we've all said and done stupid things when we get woken up by something that completely freaks us out. I won't ask you to tell me stories about the stupid things you've done when you've woken up in a half-sleep state. My stories are spectacular. Verse 5, it says, Then Peter answered. Now get this, I love Peter. This blesses me, because this is classic Peter. What does it say? It says, Peter answered. Can you find anywhere where anybody asked Peter a question? <laughs> Nobody asked Peter a question. And that's Peter, constantly answering questions that nobody is asking. So it says, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Awkward silence, awkward silence. Some say that Peter's suggesting they make three shrines in homage to the three men. Some say that, and I think this is most likely, Peter is expressing his desire that Moses and Elijah stay. They were supposed to both appear at some point before the kingdom of God came in power. There's a good chance Peter's thinking like, like this is it. This is the kingdom of God coming in power. Here's Moses and Elijah. We're going down from this mountain into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to kill all the Romans and the reign of the Messiah is about to begin. And so he's just thinking, let, let, let's get this started by building you guys some, some tabernacles. Just a little place for you to hang out. Whatever Peter's reasons were, it's going to become very clear why his suggestion was grossly inappropriate. 
And I find the next verse absolutely hilarious because it tells us why Peter had blurted this out. I, I love this. Peter, why did Peter say this? Verse six, because he did not know what to say for he was greatly afraid. Why did Peter speak? Because he didn't know what to say. Peter lived by the mantra, when you're unsure what to say, speak. That's, that's, that's what he does here. What Peter doesn't understand, write this down, is that he has just implied that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are all equal. He's just implied that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are all equal. He's unintentionally blasphemed Jesus. As an aside, remember what Luke 9 told us? It said the disciples were supposed to be praying. Peter hasn't been praying. He's been sleeping. Why? Because at this point in his life, Peter believes the same thing most of us do, that sleep is more important than prayer. And what happens? Well, Peter wakes up. He finds himself in an unexpected situation, and he does something stupid. None of us are expecting to wake up tomorrow facing an enormous challenge or greeting an incredible opportunity. We're just not. But we all know that unexpected things happen that change the course of our lives forever. When your next moment arrives, when my next moment arrives, are, are we spiritually ready for that? Are we ready for it now? Are we ready for the challenge? Are we ready for the opportunity? Will your spirit be in tune with the Holy Spirit or will you frantically respond and react off the top of your head and do or say something really stupid? Peter wasn't ready, and he responded like a fool. Write this down. Peter was sleeping when he should have been praying, and it caused him to be spiritually unprepared for his mountaintop moment. Peter was sleeping when he was praying, when he should have been praying, and it caused him to be spiritually unprepared for his mountaintop moment. But it created an interesting situation because there are many people who say Jesus was just a great man or Jesus was a prophet like Moses or Elijah. So let's see how God the Father in heaven feels about that idea because Peter has just unintentionally said they're all equal, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, all prophets. Let's see how the Father God responds to that suggestion. Verse 7, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, underline this, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And then keep underlining. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Matthew describes it this way. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. This bright cloud is what's known in the scriptures as the Shekinah glory of God. It's the same cloud that led the children of Israel through the wilderness by day. It's the same cloud that was seen on Mount Sinai when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. It's the same cloud that inhabited the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's the very presence of God. It's the same cloud that would ultimately take Jesus back up to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry in the ascension would have been an overwhelming place for Peter, James, and John to be. Matthew goes on and writes, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So just to clear up any confusion, Moses and Elijah disappear, 
A cloud, the Shekinah glory of God envelops them all and the voice of the Father thunders and basically says, Peter, shut up. Stop talking. Now is not the time for you to offer your opinions. Now is the time for you to listen to Jesus because he's my son. He's not like Elijah. He's not like Moses. He is infinitely above them. He's God in the flesh. Listen to him. I don't think there was any confusion after that. Jesus is not a prophet like Moses or Elijah. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's God in the flesh. Now that everything is back in its proper place, now that everyone's perspective has been put back where it needs to be, appropriate fear and reverence restored, now Jesus says, arise and do not be afraid. You know, I love Hebrews 4.16, one of my favorite verses. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. And I like that because I love knowing I can come boldly before God, but I need to remember. You need to remember we're coming before what? We're coming before a throne. Why, why is it a throne? Because there's a king on it. There's the king on it. The king of kings. Jesus Christ. We can come boldly, but we don't get to come boldly because Jesus got off the throne. We get to come boldly because he came to the earth, died in our place, returned to heaven, is on his father's throne, and now we have access to him. His glory is not diminished one bit. He made a way for us. And we are coming before the king. We're still coming before the king. When we worship here at church, when we pray anywhere, when we read the word at home, we're coming before the king. We can't forget that. We can't ever become flippant about our worship, about our prayer, about reading the words of the king. I know that the Holy Spirit is going to impress this on your spirit more strongly than I can preach it to you, but I want to encourage you to meditate and contemplate verses seven through eight. Let me read it to you again. It says, and a cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Everything, world events, time itself, the universe, your life, Everything is moving toward the place and the moment when it is just Jesus. You and him, every distraction removed. Above everything, the only thing that matters today and for all eternity is you and Jesus. Nothing else. Nobody else. He is the point of everything. He's the point of everything. When it is just you and Jesus, will that be the greatest moment of your life or the moment of greatest regret in your life? It'll be one of the two. I pray that we're all dreaming and longing for that moment. I know I am. And if you are, then you should be so encouraged by these verses because when these moments come up, when you wonder, are all the sacrifices worth it? When you wonder, is it worth it to live by God's word and turn down pleasures that everybody else seems to be ingesting freely? When you wonder, is it worth it to sacrifice career advancement so that I can be a man or woman of integrity? When you wonder, is it worth it to do things the Lord's way and serve my spouse even when, in my opinion, they don't deserve it? 
everything is moving toward you and Jesus. When that moment comes, and it will come for all of us, every single sacrifice you made for him will be so worth it. That moment is coming, and everything else will be worthless. Everything else will be worthless. We had a small preview yesterday. Listen, this universe is going to be rolled up like a scroll and destroyed. The universe. And it will be just us and Jesus. That moment is coming for all of us. I can't wait. I can't wait. And if that moment puts an ounce of fear in you, let me tell you what that is. It's the Holy Spirit telling you you're wasting your life. If there is an ounce of fear in you, saying, oh, oh, I want to keep that moment at bay. It's the Holy Spirit telling you, you're wasting your life. You're spending your time and energy on things you know deep down are worthless. And you're hoping that you will have more time to enjoy them. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. In verse 9 it says, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things he had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So just think about how hilarious this instruction is. Hey guys, keep this a secret. Well, I mean at least until I've risen from the dead. Oh, oh okay, sure Jesus. Then you can tell whoever you want because you know the cat's going to be out of the bag at that point really. So no wonder verse 10 reads, So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. So what Jesus is telling them is so unbelievable, the disciples are talking among each other saying, well, obviously he doesn't mean he's going to literally rise from the dead. He's speaking poetically, metaphorically, allegorically perhaps. We're on the other side of Jesus' first coming. We're almost 2,000 years past. We know that all the prophecies about his first coming were literal. So we're like stupid disciples. When he said he's going to rise from the dead, he meant he's going to rise from the dead. (laughs) This is just one of the reasons we take what the Bible says about Jesus' second coming literally. Never forget, it makes no sense at all to believe, like every Christian in the world does, that all the prophecies about Jesus' first coming were literal. But all the prophecies about his second coming are abstract, allegorical, poetic nonsense that's not understandable. There is no reason to suddenly change your approach. The word of God is the word of God. His first coming was spoken of literally. His second coming has been spoken of literally. We're just trying not to make the same mistake again that the disciples made here. This time when Jesus says, I'm coming, we're going to believe. I think he means he's actually coming back. That's what we're going to choose to believe. When we reach the resurrection in our study, we're going to find that that only the woman really understood and believed that Jesus could rise again. The men, including all the disciples, thought the whole thing was over. The women are there on the third day. They run and tell the disciples, Jesus is risen. And they, they won't even open the door. They're like, yes, he's risen in our hearts. No, he's alive. Yes, he'll be forever alive in our memory. That's right. They just don't get it. It's not even on their radar that he could actually rise from the dead. I was talking with a friend about this this week. You ever think how weird it is? Jesus was explicit three days, three days, three days. There wasn't one person who even bothered to hang out in the garden for just three days to see if it would be true. The woman show up on the third day. 
So apparently they're there to at least check. I think it's significant that they waited three days. They were paying attention. Nobody even hangs out to find out if it's true. They all go back to fishing. They're like, well, that was an interesting three years. <laughs> Unbelievable. Nobody got it. They thought the whole thing was over. Verse 11, and they, the disciples, asked him, Jesus, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, Elijah must come before the Messiah appears. Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Sounds confusing, but we've talked about this before at length. Jesus is saying that this future Elijah is coming, but has also come. And I know that sounds contradictory, but hang with me. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us that the disciples understood Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah who had already come. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. If you want to know what Elijah would have been doing if he was on the earth when Jesus was 30 years old, he would have been doing what John the Baptist was doing. Here's the crazy part for those of you who want to get really into deep thoughts here. Jesus says if Israel had received John the Baptist, received him, he would have been the future Elijah that would have ushered in the kingdom of God. So th this is crazy. This is like Jesus is describing, th there's a whole nother parallel possibility of the history of the earth playing out. Had the Jews received John the Baptist and his message and welcomed him as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, kingdom of God would have come probably right after Jesus' death and resurrection. He would have been resurrected, would have gone into Jerusalem, taken the throne of David, and started to reign. Jesus is saying if they had received him, that's what would have happened. But they didn't receive him. So there's going to be another Elijah who's going to come in the future. That Elijah comes in Revelation chapter 11. And I encourage you to get that study so you can understand that more fully. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 14 and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has an underlying mute spirit, mute spirit. In verse 25, Jesus will tell us this is actually a deaf and dumb spirit. The boy can't hear and the boy can't speak. Additionally, we're going to find out that this demonic spirit makes the boy have suicidal seizures and fits. You may remember from earlier studies, there were vocational, professional Jewish exorcists who were able to exorcise demons in the name of the Lord. But in their process, one of their first steps was having the demon speak and identify itself, and then they would use the name of the demon in their exorcism ritual. So when you had a demon who made somebody mute it was impossible for anybody to exercise that demon. That's why people are astounded when Jesus exercises demons out of someone who is a mute. That's something they've never seen anybody do before. This boy has medical issues that are being caused by a demonic spirit. And I point that out to say this. This doesn't mean that all sickness is a demonic issue, but it does mean that sickness can be. A demonic issue. And a lot of people have been hurt by churches who have misdiagnosed these situations. Obviously, diagnosing a, a spiritual issue as medical is not going to help the person. It's no good telling someone they need to repent of their secret sin when what they really need to do is go get their broken ribs fixed at the hospital. What we need to take from the word is that there are 
instances where medical issues are the result of demonic activity, oppression, and possession. And then there are medical issues where, unbelievably, they're the result of the fact that we're not immortal. We have fragile human bodies, and sometimes we need to just go to the hospital. So always keep that in mind. If you go to a church that believes either extreme, then you're missing out on something. I absolutely guarantee that, and someone's going to get hurt. So how in the world do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference? I've never been to a doctor who said, I'm glad you came to me. Because when I went to school, I learned how to distinguish between medical spiritual oppression and physical spiritual oppression. That's never happened to me. How in the world do you discern that? We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Verse 18, and wherever it seizes him, this is the father speaking, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Anyway, you slice it, this is really strange. The disciples have cast demons out of people already. Jesus told them already, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He sent them out. They've cast out demons without Jesus even around. What's going on here? Well, we can only speculate, but I think we can do so in an informed manner. Perhaps the disciples have begun to feel that their spiritual authority was like a superpower that had been given to them. And perhaps their earlier successes made them overconfident. And now instead of relying on the one who gave them the gift, Jesus, they're now relying on the gift itself. We're also going to find out that having real spiritual authority comes from one's spiritual lifestyle. A lifestyle. And apparently theirs was lacking. We're going to find out what it was lacking in the next few verses. Verse 19, he, Jesus, answered the Father and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear you? And then underline these words, bring him to me. Bring him to me. Mom and dad, future moms and dads, listen to me on this. I don't want any of us to be confused about this. It is our job to bring our children to Jesus. It is our job to bring our children to Jesus. It's the most important job we'll ever have as parents. Jesus' instructions to the Father were bring him to me. That's our job. Even if your children aren't physically present with you anymore, they've moved away. Even if they're walking in rebellion away from the Lord and won't go to church with you, don't want to talk about Jesus with you, then you bring them to Jesus in prayer. That responsibility doesn't go away when you're an adult. They're your kids forever. You're still their mom. You're still their dad. And you keep bringing your children to Jesus, whether they will cooperate with that or not. There's nothing they can do to stop you from praying and bringing them before the Lord in prayer. That is our number one job as parents. Bring them to me, Jesus said. Verse 20, then they brought him to him. And when they saw him, immediately when they saw Jesus, the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if, underline if, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So can you imagine the stress of being this boy's parents. You know, open fires are a common thing in the ancient world. 
as our unprotected bodies of water. Can you imagine you turn your back on him for a moment and he's rolling around in fire? Can you imagine the stress on the marriage? Why weren't you watching him? I turned around for just a second. This boy is probably covered in burns. He's probably physically deformed. The family would have been ostracized because of his appearance, but also because the whole village would know, your kid's demon-possessed. So, no, he can't come over for a sleepover. Can you imagine being this boy's parents? What a lonely existence. Make note of Jesus' demeanor in this situation. Jesus carries himself with such a calm spiritual authority. The child is rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus calmly says, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus doesn't scream and yell and work himself into a Pentecostal fervor. He just carries on a normal conversation. You see, Jesus knows the spiritual principle. Demons are not allergic to screaming and shouting, right? There's no demon in the world that's going, oh, I got to get out of here. They're starting to shout and dance. It doesn't do anything. They have to respond and submit to the authority of Jesus. We also notice that the father of the boy clearly has doubts. He says, if you can do anything. Jesus' response, you'll see, is if I can do anything, if I can do anything. That's not the problem in this situation. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, underline, if you can believe. If you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. Jesus says, you're asking me if I can do anything. But let me ask you this. Can you do one thing? Can you believe? Can you have faith? And Jesus says the same thing to you and I over and over and over again in life. Write this down. Jesus asks only one thing of the boy's father. Faith. Asks only one thing. Faith. That seemingly insurmountable, unsolvable problem you're facing, the Lord is asking you, can you believe? Will you believe? Will you begin with the faith you have and, and water it with the word? Will you hold on to hope? Will you speak in faith? Will you meditate on the scriptures and feed that faith? The obvious biblical caveat here is that our faith has to be in alignment with the will of heaven. The Bible tells us that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, the very desires we have will come from the Lord. Our desires are going to line up with the desires of heaven because when you love God, you'll begin to love what he loves. The raw honesty of the father's response is so moving in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, underline, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, I, I believe, but I know that I don't believe enough to receive what I'm asking for. What a different response to the many who would say, well, if you're a good man, then you would heal him. Well, if you're such a loving God, why is he sick in the first place? Or I go to church, heal him, do it. This father is saying, you're right, Jesus, you're right. I do lack faith, and you're right that my lack of faith is the issue right now. He's not fighting Jesus. He's agreeing with Jesus. How many times do you find a casual Christian, someone you know, goes to church every now and then, probably people you know, you know they're not walking with the Lord in a faith-trust relationship. The crisis hits, 
and they're mad God isn't doing what they want. They're mad. If, if you're good, if you were loving, you know, I'm never going to go to church now because I asked God for one thing and he won't give me a truck. I can't believe it. What a horrible God he is. This man is responding. He says, you know, you're right. You are right, Lord. This moment is revealing that I haven't been living the way I should up to this point. You're absolutely right. This is a contrite and repentant heart in this father. And what does Psalm 34, 18 say? It says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. On to verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, not shouting, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Jesus most likely does this because a crowd is starting to gather and Jesus doesn't want this to turn into a sideshow. Verse 26, then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him and he became as one dead so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Here's the great thing. Even when the disciples of Jesus are lacking, when the disciples of Jesus are not everything that they should be, when you hang around the disciples of Jesus, guess who shows up sooner or later? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. That's just one of the reasons being together as the church is so vital. You know, the people who make up the church may be a disappointment to you sometimes. We won't always be everything that we should be. But here's what I know. I know Jesus loves his church. Jesus shows up in his church among his people. Even when the disciples are lacking, you hang out with the disciples of Jesus, sooner or later, Jesus is going to show up. That's why you want to be around them, even when they're missing the mark. Verse 28, and when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately the question they'd been dying to ask, why could we not cast it out? In Matthew's gospel, it adds this at this point. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus explains now that there are situations, though, where even more than faith is needed. A lifestyle of spiritual discipline is needed. So Jesus is saying, you guys haven't been praying. Your faith is not where you really think it is. You want to believe that you're these giants of faith. You're not there yet. But then Jesus goes on and says, but guys, there's also something else going on here. We'll go back to Mark's gospel, verse 29. This is huge. So he said to them, and then underline this whole quote, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. If your Bible doesn't say fasting, go buy a new translation. It's kind of a big deal. Earlier we acknowledged the difficulty in discerning whether an issue is spiritual or medical. And that's the answer. It's discernment. And true spiritual discernment only comes from a person who's living a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Jesus isn't saying when you find a demon like this, go away, fast and pray, come back again. He's saying you should have been fasting and praying as a lifestyle, then you'd be ready for this when it comes across your path. You gotta be spiritually ready for these situations. Write this down. Some spiritual breakthroughs are impossible without a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Some spiritual breakthroughs are impossible without a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. 
a lifestyle of prayer and fasting makes us able to hear clearly from the Holy Spirit in those moments. In, especially in those moments where he's the only one who knows what's going on. You can't always pull out a test and be like, let's see, are they walking on the ceiling? Check. Head spinning 360 degrees? Check. Probably demon-possessed. It's not always that simple. We all know, we've all had experiences where, where something's going on and we can't put our finger on it. And then after going way too long, trying to figure out what are we going to do, Finally, the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm just going to cut you a break. Have you considered that there may be something spiritual going on here? And we go, oh, dude, that explains everything. Jesus is saying, if you want to be able to handle these things in the moment, you got to be in a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. And trust me, you can't fake it. And you don't want to fake it. I'm just going to use this as an excuse to read my favorite Bible story of all time. Just ask the sons of Sceva how it went for them when they tried to fake spiritual discernment. Paul writes about them in Acts 19. I'll read it to you. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. <laughs> I love this. It's probably my favorite line in the Bible for unspiritual reasons. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? As I say, this is what we call an oh crap moment in the Bible. <laughs> then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt upon them, all seven of them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Love that story. You can't fake the results of spiritual prayer and fasting. Let me go further and say this. When you try to, it's going to wreak destruction in your life. It's going to destroy your relationships. How many of you know somebody who destroyed a relationship because they said, I feel like the Lord is telling you this, and they were a million miles off. It was their opinion, and they just added the words, I feel the Lord is saying to the front of their opinion destroyed a relationship. Why? They had no business even being in that fight. They had no business being in that situation. They were not spiritually prepared. And somebody ends up naked and wounded running for their lives. I think we've all seen that before, of course. So, Prayer attaches us to God. Fasting detaches us from our flesh. Write this down. Prayer strengthens our spirit and fasting weakens our flesh. Prayer strengthens our spirit, and fasting weakens our flesh. Share some thoughts in closing. In the Greek, the opposite of the word metamorphosis is actually the word masquerade. A masquerade is a superficial external change in which the subject is completely unchanged within. It's all superficial. It's all on the outside. Jesus is the only one who can actually change a man on the inside forever. He's the only one who can transfigure you and I. He's the only one who can eternally change who we are and who we will be. I want to let Paul preach to us from 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to read it to you verbatim. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We won't all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The day of our transfiguration, our our metamorphosis, is coming sooner than we think, so much sooner than we think. How are we to live in the meantime while we're waiting for the day we arrive in the Lord's presence and are fully transformed? It's interesting, the only other place in the New Testament that that Greek word metamorpho appears is in Romans 12, where Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The actual translation is your rational service. And do not be conformed to this world. The original Greek there is using the imagery of being pressed into a mold. It's saying, don't be pressed into a mold by this world, but be transformed. Transformed, there's that word. And the Greek doesn't imply a one-time event. It's a continuous process. It's saying, be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's the idea. Belonging to Jesus, walking with Jesus, is supposed to have a profound effect on our minds. The way we think, the way we see the world, it's supposed to completely change our worldview. What is a worldview? It's simply the lens through which you see everything, the world around you. Most people have a worldview that's given to them by society popular culture, and the wisdom of the present age. Most people see the world the way their school tells them to, the way that media tells them to, the way that society tells them to. Christians are called by Jesus to have a worldview that comes from his word. That's what Christians are called to do. Paul makes it clear, hey, when you have a worldview that comes from the word of God, guess what? You're going to see things very, very differently from the rest of the world. And if you're a Christian, you just got to know that. You should be running into problems with the way the world sees the world. We don't look at things the same way. We're seeing them from the Lord's perspective, not man's perspective. And here's what a biblical worldview will do. It will enable you, it will empower you to walk in the will of God. So let's bring this all down to a very practical level. Just got a little bit left here. How do you get a biblical worldview? How do you have your mind transformed by the Holy Spirit? Step one, this is really obvious. You want a biblical worldview, guess where that comes from? The Bible. It comes from the Word of God. You've got to have the Bible in your life on a daily basis. Secondly, be intentional about your meditations. I don't mean sitting down and going, um, on a log on kits or something like that. Meditation, what you're thinking about throughout the day. All of us are thinking about something. But what are you thinking about throughout the day? Or do you just have the radio on all the time? 
blasting a secular worldview on you. Music blasting the world's values onto you all day, every day, filling your mind with things that hate the Lord, that hate his word. What's your meditation throughout the day? What are you thinking about? Thirdly, you gotta disconnect yourself from these worldviews that are contrary to the word of God. I know this sounds radical, but you need to understand this. Almost everybody wants you to see the world the way that they do. Political parties, authors, magazines, kids' cartoons preach a worldview. Do you know that? Businesses preach a worldview. You name it. And we need to understand that so that we don't gorge ourselves on media and things being produced by people who hate God who hate his ways, who hate his word. Don't consume tons and tons of TV and movie and websites and social media written and authored by people who hate the Lord. Don't do that. It's going to distort your worldview. Do you know what preceded the Ashley Madison hack? Do you know what came before us finding out that, you know, 80 plus percent of married people would have an affair if they could. You know what happened before all that? Seemingly every married person on TV having an affair. That came long before that. Seemingly every married couple in a movie having an affair. And it being romantic and amazing and an upgrade. That was going on for years before Ashley Madison happened. Just being pumped into us. You know what came before Ashley Madison? The rise of internet porn internet porn being considered a normal, healthy thing. That came before that. The worldview was preached long before the behavior became rampant in our society. So be wise. Tune in. Discern what is being preached to you, your family, your kids. There's stuff I don't consume, not because I'm scared it's going to taint me. I'm not scared of it. It's because I don't want to poison my marriage. I don't want to poison the way I see my kids. I don't want to poison the way that I look at women. I don't want to poison the way that I value people. I don't want to do that. But why would I consume things that turn me into someone I don't want to be? I encourage you to think about, think about what you're taking in. Get in the Word meditate on the word, disconnect from the things that hate the word, and you'll be amazed by the results. You will be amazed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Peter wasn't prayed up, and he ended up saying something stupid. The disciples weren't prayed up, hadn't been fasting, and they lacked the spiritual authority they needed when their moment of challenge appeared before them. The time to prepare for your next challenge and your next opportunity is now. Are you ready? There's not going to be time to prepare later. When the crisis hits, the faith you have is the faith you have. When the opportunity arrives, the faith you have is the faith you have. Lastly, Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. He's not a prophet. He's God. I love the way Paul answers the question, who is Jesus? We'll end with this. In Colossians 1, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And one day, it will be just you and him. That's where everything is moving. The universe, time itself, world events, your life is moving to that moment, that time when it's just you and Jesus. I don't want you to leave here today with that not being the moment you are looking forward to with your entire being. Don't leave here if you're not looking forward to that moment. It should be our greatest hope, the moment of our greatest desire. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? What a challenging word. I know, if I'm honest, I am not as prepared as I should be for my next challenge and my next opportunity. I want to encourage all of us to seriously think through our spiritual lifestyles so that we're ready. We're ready. The Lord is looking for people who are ready. Father, I pray that you would shine a light by the power of your Holy Spirit on whatever it is that you want each of us to draw from your word this morning, Lord. Not a word for someone else, but your Holy Spirit's word for us by the power of your word. Lord, I pray you would make it so obvious to each of us how you want us to respond. Lord, it's our confession that you are worthy above all things. And everything revolves around you. All things move towards you. You're at the center of everything. Lord, thank you that when we stand before the God of the universe who brought Peter, James, and John to their knees in fear when he appeared in glory. When we stand before you, we won't have to be afraid or fearful. But Lord, we will get to be in awe, in reverent awe of who you are. But knowing that we belong to you, knowing that our standing before you is brothers of Jesus, sons of the Most High God, sisters of Jesus. We know where we stand. Thank you for bringing us into your family, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.